Hello, and welcome to the first ever Fulcrum Point podcast. I'm Dylan Dagenet. Since 1998, Chicago's Fulcrum Point New Music Project has dedicated itself to the advancement of diverse new music through multimedia performances, educational programs, and the commissioning of innovative works. For our first podcast, I had the opportunity to record an installment of Fulcrum Point's Discovery Series, a program dedicated to sharing composers' new works and the insights of the composers, performers, and audience members. You will also hear Fulcrum Point's founder and artistic director, Stephen Burns. Our goal with this podcast is to put you in the room. This event took place in a small reverberant workshop located in Chicago's storied Fine Arts Building. Violin parts line the walls and people mill into the room, taking their seats. In this program, you will hear Keaton Garrett's spontaneous and percussive Dissolve, and Frank Narat's mesmerizing and languid The Spiral. From these two pieces, great conversations were sparked about accessibility, modernism, and standing on the shoulders of giants. After the event, I had the opportunity to ask some questions of composer Frank Narat myself, so stick around. Good evening, thank you for coming. My name is Stephen Burns, I'm the founder and artistic director of Vocal Point Music Project. Welcome to our discovery series. It's about discovering the inner inspiration process of, of a composer's uh, way of making new art music, is what we call it, because we have no idea what's going to be the next thing, and, and hopefully tonight you have a, a chance to really get inside uh, the process. So, um, please welcome Jeremy Musrath, Richard Brazil. Did you say Brasiale? Or Brasile? Brasile. Brasile. <laughs> See, I, you know, I, I turn everything into a Music, and then we'll talk about it. The composer, unfortunately, was also had a, an invitation to a new festival tonight, so he wasn't able to be here. Nor able to Skype because he's actually in a, in a rehearsal at this hour. So, but um, he sent me some messages, and we there's some program notes, and then we can just talk about it. And, and you know, the performers I'm sure will have some insights. So, thank you very much. Thank you. 
conversation about about the, really the, 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 the visual experience. Thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Um, about the whole the whole process because um, this piece here was inspired clearly by by um, Philip Glass and other minimalists like Ted Hearn and Mazzoli and others. But um, it has so many elemental qualities to it. The idea of dissolve comes from the idea of, of, of uh, something like Alka-Seltzer, where something dissolves and, and, and splits up into many, many pieces. And then there are all kinds of, of um, ways that it evanesces into, a, into its own form. Um, what was it like to play that piece besides incredibly physical? It's tiring. It's very tiring. <laughs> you got, I've never known a saxophonist to get tired. <laughs> it happens. It's more inside. So what's your take on the piece? Um, I, I think it's interesting. The composer is a saxophone player, and he's playing with the idea to create this sort of dissolving sort of texture of sounds that uh, quasi-disappear. Um, <clears throat> He called it, there's a technique called subtone, and there are actually different kinds of subtone employed on saxophone. The most familiar is sort of a jazz subtone, where you change the armature to mute to read. Um, and that's not what we're doing here. Another type is to mute the read in a different way that sounds sort of like, like a low clarinet kind of sound. Or just simply playing it kind of quasi-niente at the sort of borderline of where the sound is speaking, which is mostly what we're employing here. Right. And he's doing this where we're sort of alternating, where one of us has more of a full sound, while the other has sort of an airy, not completely formed sort of sound. And it's kind of three-dimensional. Yeah. And also part of it, it actually there's a percussive element that if you really if you if you're really fastidious about your listening you might say well I don't want to hear that which is the, I love that yeah. but it actually that's a part of the it's part of the bubbles of the of the effervescence of the dissolving in the in the piece and and very often composers do that just they'll write only that mm -hmm. and how much of that is in this piece is he do only keys I think it's very rarely, actually. There, there's a, um, a morphing of the sound. So you can think of it almost as a spectrum. So he'll notate um, <clears throat> Xs, which are almost no sound at all. right? And then, <clears throat> uh, to varying degrees, uh, notation that, that has the notes indicated to be more present. You know, so you, you're sort of going from one to the other. So it's at the beginning you hear more and you hear less, you know. I think I think understanding as a Saxon player himself that you know you're notating this and you're gonna get some variation of, of how that's going to respond, you know. Um, but that's okay probably, I assume. But also play play the first gesture that we talked about in terms of it's almost as if when the tablet gets dropped in the solution. Oh, right, the uh, it's reverse just a, it's, a, it's a very simple one note. 
forward, if you were to imagine, of course, those of us who grew up in the, in the 70s and, and listened to LPs, and, and now people are listening to more LPs, I mean, the whole idea of playing an LP backwards, <coughs> you get this idea of it's kind of where he's going from, but it's also this idea of just like, dropping something into, a, into, a, into an explosion. Yeah. What was your take on it as listeners? Put that part of the score. That's, that's the page turn. No, I know. That's the page. I'm realizing I'm doing it pretty aggressively, and I have to figure out maybe some velvet. Pay no attention to the foot. There's a percussive quality of your keys hearing the the isn't actual. Is that was that on purpose, or am I just hearing the actual performance? Yeah. So what does he say? The function of the keys. He actually says keep it should be fairly audible. Oh, because yeah. And yeah. during a lot of locations, he's kind of using like the saxophone to the advantage of the instrument. Whereas, yeah. you know, is that, I like that aspect. I think it's. I think that's the in contemporary music. I think that's the where the the um, the strength lies. Rather than trying to treat it, uh, we're here, art by the generosity of our host Eric Swanson and his atelier of violins and violas and, and bows and things like that. So thank you very much. Sure. But also. Very often, some you know, in the 19th century, they would write for the saxophone as if it were a, a virtuoso violin, yeah. and so they would try to hide this kind of progressive right. quality. And now it's like, no, all the gloves are off, <laughs> and you get to actually get inside. And it's kind of almost in, on the level of, of contemporary art. It's this kind of de deconstructionist approach, which is you really want to hear the industrial nature of everything that the instrument can do. Yeah. And this is this is an instrument, especially in contemporary music, it can do so much. You know, in terms of like you know, quarter tones and, mm -hmm. and subtones, but also, you know, multiphonics. Just if you would demonstrate the, you know, the way that a composer can actually create chords. Somewhat minimalist 
um, composers, and, and yet the sensibilities are radically different. And you know, you guys probably would say, this isn't minimalist minimalist. This no. is kind of like maximalist minimalist. <laughs> and that's what's really interesting in terms of looking at different, at different, um, different styles of music. Right. Those are wonderful insights. Anybody else have takes on it? Please, yeah, fire away. Well, so my question is, it sounds like there was a lot notated by the composer you know, exactly how much to press things like that. I'm wondering, like, to what extent was your interpretation coming in, and when were you making interpretive choices versus like, how do you kind of balance that with the score? There are a few parts of the piece that, like, for instance, it has no heads notated at like mezzo forte halfway through a line where it, it just says to like have a key click, which is kind of like impossible to just stop your breathing to have a consistent phrase. So there is a bit of interpretive like you need to have like the key click needs to be most important, but you need to like keep the air constant throughout to make the phrase possible. Well, that's where you have to sort of interpret what he's saying. So when he's writing very soft dynamics and the notes disappear. That's pretty easy. But when he writes mezzo forte, but certain notes disappear, you know, what does he mean? Well, the general dynamic, what I think, is the general dynamic is mezzo forte, but still these notes disappear, you know? You know, so the, the louder sounds are kind of mezzo forte, but then you still have the notes sort of dissolving within that texture. Which can happen when it's pianissimo as well. It's just the, the whole scale is lower, you know. But the interpretation, you know, that it will be different every single time. So, for instance, why don't you play? Um, pick, pick a section that you feel like you know you could, and, and where you might do it slightly differently this time. Because every time we play a piece of music, even though it's completely notated and very very precise, the beginning. The, the 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 heart and the body and and the the whole idea changes. It changes because there's more people in the room now. It changes because it's the second time around. It changes because um, everything changes. So we're going to do the beginning again. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
that time I almost I put no air into my instrument. Almost to the point where I could have just taken out my like I could have taken them out inside my mouth and just like because technically that would still be doable because he only notates the key clicks and says that there should be no noise, but that's, that's just one interpretation. But I think, you know, when the composer knows the instrument well, um, I think it's written so that it's going to naturally produce pretty close to the sound. I mean, there is some consistency here. So when I first looked at this and I saw, okay, these key clicks, so I have to go, yeah. and that's not really possible. And especially knowing that the composer knows the instrument, I'm pretty sure he didn't intend for that to happen. It's possible in some places, but for, for the whole piece to actually do that much of a key click. So I think he just wants you to play naturally, maybe kind of hard technique to, to create that sound rather than going an extra, you know. Um, so I think it's kind of pretty clear that if you play the saxophone a certain way and you sort of dissolve the sound, you're going to get kind of some consistency with the, with the sound. What else did you notice the second time around? Yeah. Well, so I was really intrigued by the circular breathing. Um, and I feel like that's really something I really admire. So is that something that's notated? How, I mean, how much is that is planned out by your, by your <laughs> survival? Pure <laughs> survival. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's, it's almost necessary to play it. He doesn't he doesn't suggest circular breathing. He talks about planning breaths out so that they're not obvious in, in, in certain places. Um, there are certain places where I chose not to circular breathe just because it was too many balls in the air. Mm. Um, so I just put some breaths in where I was at first, my first strategy was I'm just gonna circular breathe, but then it, it didn't really disrupt the line to put breaths in certain places. But other places, it's just probably the best way to do it. Otherwise, you have to maybe leave something out to take a breath. Um, and um, lots of composers are writing stuff like this. We did we did a discoveries a year ago, and it was a very similar saxophone duet where there's no place to breathe, and it just needs to go around. And so it's sort of become a, a standard saxophone technique these days. Um, where you kind of have to do So one of the things that I noticed along the way this time around was um, each of them played one long note. So in, in January, we, we interviewed uh, George Zontakis and, and, and Augusta Reed Thomas, and they were talking about, the, it wasn't so much the speed, which clearly they were playing very, very fast, but really the difference between density and space. And this time around, I really appreciated the space that the long notes created these allusions to melody. Mm -hmm. If you were to just play the long notes, one to one to one, and then end up with that frullato at the end, it becomes one melody, even though it's not. And I, this, so if the composer were here, I would say, did you think of this as a melody, or is it just these tracts of lines, the way when you look at a landscape, one mountain connects to the next mountain, and they become a line, just that way. Or both. Or both. And it could, can be both. Stephen and I talked a little bit about this. Um, he employs these timbre trills, which are either metered, or they're um, notated in a particular um, rhythm. So you're changing the timbre. 
or just a trill. You know, like that. So it's, very, it's a very subtle difference. <laughs> I'm actually using some quarter tone fingerings just because I want it to be audible enough. Because we can do quarter tones relatively easily. I shouldn't say that with composers around. Me. <laughs> <laughs> so demonstrate the difference between the first one and the quarter tone version. Okay, so this F on, on an F, I'm actually playing uh, an F quarter tone flat fingering. That's one where I would consider that to be more of a just timbre trill rather than, right. a, than a quarter tone trill. So do the timbre trill and then the quarter trill. So the vibrations are much more intense with a quarter tone trill than it has a... So that's something I would, if the composer were here, I would say, is that, do you prefer that? Or, you know, the, the, right. the subtle, you know. One thing that he didn't do, which I thought would be interesting, is use a bisbigliando, which would really create that um, Alcacess-Seltzer effect. Mm -hmm. That's tambour trilling, but like various tambour trilling in random. Mm -hmm. Rather than just. Right, so that's, you know, on the harp, the, a you, you will trill between two notes, or the bisbigliando is a way of, of kind of tremoloing mm -hmm. in a certain way. Yeah. That's great. Any thoughts or questions else that you might want to add to this? Where could this piece go? I, I almost feel like this is like one movement out of other mm -hmm. things. Question of where it went in a different way, just in terms of physical space. Mm -hmm. So, if you're the composer, uh, for example, the percussive qualities, you know, large acoustic space, you wouldn't hear them, mm -hmm. or unless you were electrified. And in that case, it was the composer right. who did it. Is the composer of a point of view as whether or not this is acoustical or if it's electrified? And if it's in a smaller space, obviously it doesn't make so much of a difference. But you wonder if the orchid, if the composer has an intent. Or if that's to amplify, yeah. Well, also, again, the, the percussive qualities will get lost in a large acoustic setting. I, would I, I often think when I hear things that use key clicks that it's not very effective because they don't project very well. Mm -hmm. Unless you put a microphone in front of the instrument or in the instrument where you hear it. it. It seems like a cool idea in your studio. But, and like, that sounds cool. But in, you're right, in a larger space, uh, it, it kind of gets lost and sometimes isn't effective unless you can really amplify them. Then it, then it can be really kind of cool. And, and even then, if you, even if you weren't amplified, then would it have the same effect? And the same idea is like, if these, if these two guys were on the stage of the, of the Symphony Center or the Harris Theater, would you have felt the visceral energy of them churning this, this you know, constant change between two, three, four, five, and six. Because that's what basically the composer is taking um, combinations of, of duples and triples and quartuplets, etc., and constantly spiraling them as in a way to get a sense of the ever you know evanescence of of uh, of something of a, a solution dissolving in, in water. So you know the minute you get away from the glass, you know it's like okay. You know, that's, where we, that's why we have telescopes as we look at the universe, and we get closer and closer to a, a galaxy. It's like, holy, there's so much more energy there. We just think it's a star, and it's really a whole solar system. 
Because Composer doesn't have a point of view as to the setting for that. He doesn't say anything in his performance notes about it. He probably would love to have his music at Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> but would it have the same impact? Right? That's, the, that's the conversation that is ongoing. It's like, sometimes music is intimate. That's why it's called chamber music. It's supposed to be in a room like this. It's in a small chamber, you know, a shawl. Yeah. Anybody else have any other comment? Or, I mean, one of my favorite comments is a yabba comment. <laughs> yabba. Or, I don't quite get what he was going for. Because I don't always get what composers are going for until I kind of live with it for a while. I think that is the one of the great um, struggles, one of the great uh, challenges that we have in music is that, of course, very often you get a performance, a premiere, and sometimes you might get a second performance, but you don't get to live with the piece the way a composer has to live with it as they write it. And, Unless you, of course, you, you take it and you champion it and you play it everywhere you go. And as an audience member, then you have to follow people around. Do you have any, what was your experience with these? A little confusion. Yeah, how so? Well, it started one way and it kind of went into something else and mm -hmm. further into something else. And were you, were, were you anticipating something else, maybe? I think I was. What were you? Maybe a little sooner. Uh -huh. That's easier. This is more challenging for me. Yeah, it is. Because often we're thinking of music in terms of, of, of melody and pulse or rhythm and uh, a sense of harmonic continuity, the way Bach wrote, right. or a jazz, great jazz musician you know, would write chord changes <clears throat> on a jazz standard. In music like this, I feel like it, it's, it's actually a, uh, it's more like whitewater rafting. And you're, you're kind of, uh, in your canoe, and you're gonna just kind of like launch, and then you're gonna paddle and balance and float, and then. Well, here's the thing. I think it sounds like improvisation, but it is all completely notated. And so, as listeners, I find when I'm listening to a new piece like this, I'm listening like I'm anticipating what an improviser is going to do, rather than saying, "Oh, I'm trying to recognize the song that he's improvising on." I'm appreciating the contours and the bumps and the, the unexpected joy of, of white riding, whitewater rafting or, uh, or, you know, I've been reading about riding horses, you know, and a horse never actually goes where exactly how you want it to go. You have to have, find your path, your balance, and then work with it. So, so let's try a smoother version. It'll last you the last page and a half. There has to be a spot there. And let's do the smooth out. And I, I appreciated, Jeremy, the way that you ended it this time after our little discussion, the difference between six and three. It's great. Hmm. There's a difference between when, when, we, when we play in three and when we play in six, they're the same number of notes. That's the math of it. But the feel is different when you're playing in three than when you're playing in six.
inspiration. Well, tell me about the, about the, about the you see, you mentioned, like you alluded to in the program notes, a, a cloud formation. Yeah. Um, what was that like? Let me come up here. Please do. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks, thanks to you guys, by the way. How do you pronounce your last name, by the way? Nara. Nara. Yeah, it's a, a modified Polish. Nara wrote. Yeah, close enough. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, the it this this has a weird life. This piece has a weird life. It started um, in like a practice room at Grand Rapids Community College. I don't know, eight years ago, after I, I was practicing or something, guitar or piano, I don't remember. And I was at the piano and I saw this YouTube video um, on one of my mini breaks that I was probably taking of uh, the spiral that appeared in the skies of Norway. Uh, people now think it was like a, a missile or something that went out of control, but you just see all of a sudden in the sky it's black, but then you see this little light and then it sort of spins and forms this really beautiful, perfect spiral. And um, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So I was just, I started actually playing, I think it was this. Um, And so I wrote like a really terrible short piano piece that I don't think I've ever showed anybody. Um, I don't think I've showed anybody. <laughs> um, so it was not until a few years ago that I was like going through all of my my crud on my computers that I found it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. So I was really motivated by the, that theme that I found quite compelling. Um, and I was like, I need to write something that allows folks to live in that world of that musical theme. Um, and this is what I came up with. So that's sort of how the piece was conceptualized originally. And yeah, there, there's a lot more story to the life, but I think maybe questions might be the best way to unravel that if anybody has them. I can I can talk for ever. Well, so so you also mentioned Julius Eastman. Yeah. So tell us for those of us in the audience who don't know about can you kind of go into the? Yeah. This is he's a composer who has now become basically the flavor of the month after being a homeless person for the last basically twenty five years of his life. Well, that's not accurate. <laughs> no, but the last the last year or so, yeah, it was like so. Anyway, yeah, Julius Eastman is a composer. Um, he was like a minimalist composer in the seventies, eighties. Uh, best known actually as a singer. Um, he was on the Grammy-winning record um, by the, of eight songs for Mad King by Peter Maxwell Davies. Um, he sang on that. He sang for Meredith Monk, uh, but he was also a really um, intriguing and innovative minimalist composer. And he he sort of appropriated this idea of organic music that that was sort of this centrally Germanic musical idea and, and, and sort of went a different route with it whereby you would have musical themes, but instead of developing them, you would develop the structures of the piece. Um, so you would hear something, you'd hear something else, and then as you get a, just a little bit into the piece, everything you hear um, was building off of structures. So every third, for example, every third um, section contains something from the previous three sections. Does that make sense? So and you're, are you talking about your piece now? Well, no. So Julius Eastman did that with many of his pieces, right. and this piece does that as well. Um, 
So you're always hearing something that you heard within the past three sections. So it's organic, but it's so obviously organic. That, and that's something I love about um, Julius Eastman in particular, because it's not always true of minimalism that it's, it's like an obvious procedure. I mean, Stravinsky was a, um, a composer who had a lot of clarity in his music. Um, but that was something I was drawn to was, how can I allow an audience of any musical training to, to hear, hear something musical and follow its development from beginning to end? And the most obvious answer was not do anything to it, but, but allow the audience to hear how it interacts with other things so that you can actually trace its development and its interactions with other musical ideas um, quite easily um, if, you're, if you're trying to do that. Um, it does take maybe a little explanation. I mean, I, think, I do think that each section is compelling enough on its own to sort of get lost in it a little bit. Um, but if, if you're inclined to do that type of listening, I think it's really easy and really fun. Um, and I stole that from better composers than I, like Julius Eastman and, and many others. So. Well, Terry Riley yeah. in C is where they would have these C cells mm -hmm. that step by step. And, and, and what is interesting about that piece is that it's improvised. This isn't improvised. Right. And that you are, you're, you're required to absolutely line up. There's some either pianist or xylophone player or blockerschild player who goes ding 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 ding, and and then everybody plays these these things, and I think it's, that's a, a very powerful kind of way of writing music. Mm -hmm. um, I just I love your musical landscape, and, and so as you as you explore the, the harmonic development um, of this piece, you know, as you said, if you play in a major, you're, you're okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so how do you, how can you explain the, the evolution of feeling hmm. as you go through something that is in one tonality, yeah. except it's not? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the thing. We're using the same collection of notes throughout, um, which I don't know if the previous piece was sort of like that, but I got the feeling that it was sort of, sort of like that. I had a collection that it used. Um, and and one, one reason that I think Minimalism has been so successful in like advertisements and movies as background music to various situations is because it actually reflects the mode of production in our society and the, the, the way that we listen to music now. Anyway, it just just on the radio. You know, people complain all the time about everything sounding the same on the radio, and everything does sort of sound similar. And it, and this piece is sort of like listening to a pop radio station. Or, God help us, a classic rock radio station where it's the same like four major artists, hour after hour. So it's sort of the same thing where you can actually hear how they're similar, for better or worse. I would argue it's, it's neither really. It's just there. It exists. And we have to deal with it. But, um, so that's sort of how I explain how we can move through feelings or or different musical landscapes, even though we're staying within the same pitch collection. So I'm emphasizing low notes, different low notes. I mean, it's, it's that simple sometimes. You can, you can assert a tonal center through assertion. You can say C sharp is, is the lowest note. So now we're getting the, the overtones that, that is in that note. And our ears, even if you don't know what that means, you recognize that you're in a new space, kind of. Um, if, you, if the lowest note is something new. So actually by sitting on one low note for 
quite a while, when a new low note comes in, it's, it's striking, even though it's already part of the pitch collection. So let's start with an A major chord in the piano. It's rich all the way across, like all 10 fingers. Here, I'll take that away if you very much. I can put you in a world 
a sound world for X number of seconds to minutes, and then you're, you're, it's ambiguous because I've left one out. Mm -hmm. So this could have been in C sharp minor, so we could have been, you know, um, but instead when that low C sharp comes in, I do. So, but the idea ahead of time was to slowly reveal in the beginning that it is an A major. And then in the, in the second major, there's four major seconds in this, uh, four major sections. And in the second major section, you hear that low A that says, ah, yeah. that's home. Yeah, it, just, it bothered me in a really good way. Cool. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it was definitely, that was the intention was to, to reveal that it's actually D natural, not D sharp. Because if it was D sharp, it wouldn't have sounded um, it wouldn't have sounded as tense, and then the the release wouldn't have been as interesting. I enjoy the sort of numerology in the numbers of descending repeats. It actually reminds me of a completely different piece, the Various Sequenza Seven, okay. which we play on soprano. Well, it's the oboe one. Oh. It's thirteen staves with thirteen measures which are seconds, mm. in descending numbers of seconds. Mm. And there are 13 of those, and then that's all messed up by these sort of huh. held notes. <clears throat> and then you're sort of achieving this spiral shape mm -hmm. by having, at first, sort of descending groups of durations, yeah. and then ascending groups of durations. And then you change, um, you go by even numbers, odd numbers. Um, so, <laughs> so you're creating yeah. like this, and then you create like this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for noticing that. It's expanding and then it's coming back and then it's on a new, yeah. a new circle of the spiral. So you use a different, you go by twos right. instead of by sequences. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So what was your compositional math in this? Um, there wasn't really math. I, I, and actually, so what he's referring to is, like I said, the, there's no development within a single musical motive. It's the structures that develop and interact. Um, so what he's referring to is in the score, there's a measure, and then there's a number on top of the measure to the top left that tells you how many times to play through that measure. And at the time, I was thinking, I was thinking about, I was thinking about, why don't more people listen to contemporary music? And then I thought to myself, well, because it's boring, a lot of the time. So why is it boring to people? Why do people sit through two hours of movies, be, but not through, you know, uh, two hours of two symphonies or something? Well, the obvious answer is movies have, you know, explosions and da da da. But I was thinking of, of how to circumvent that. So I wanted to write sort of a long piece. I mean, it's it's like nine minutes long. So it's not long by classical music standards, but it's a it's long for your aunt Sally to sit through. You know, one piece of music, right? Um, so what I wanted to do was create like this this wave of events where in the beginning it sort of gets linearly, not exponentially, because that was impossible. I tried it. Um, linearly um, quicker with the, the the rate of change. So you hear something ten times, nine times, eight times, seven times. Because if you do it the opposite way for too long, then by the time you get to the end of that process, you're hearing something twenty times. When you we when you in the beginning you were taught by the composer um, that the sequence of events is actually quick. So so what I what I taught you is that they're long and to be patient, and then I sort of went around that and started making the events come quicker so that 
you were, even though there's this level of stasis in the piece because of the pitch collection, because of the repetition, you're getting this rate of change in the events. And then, so yeah, it comes down in number and then it goes up in number in the, in the second half of the piece. Um, but in that second half, I said, okay, well, I'm doing the thing that I hate the most, where like a concert program starts with a three minute piece and ends with a symphony. It's like it should be backwards, <laughs> I think. Um, so I, I said, I'm doing that, so why don't I make this part a lot richer sonically? And then I, I hope that I, I achieved that. I think I did. What do you guys think? Um, you said, why don't you ask? Why don't more people listen to classical music? That's a very interesting question. Is there an implication behind that question about the past? Could you elaborate? For example, uh, are you suggesting that more people listen to classical music, say, 200 years ago or 300 years ago? No. Than now? No, I don't think so. I think more people listen to it now more than ever. Okay. Um, but I think more people listen to music in general more than ever because For you example, can't help it. How many it. people were actually listening to J.S. Fox's music on his own day? Right, yeah, if, if you went to the church he was working at or if you were wealthy and could attend well, the concerts. Yeah, yeah, so it, it, the, the question it inundates composers because we, I, I, I don't know why exactly, but I think part of it is that we, I'm working as a composer, yet I have to compete with Bach. And I'm like, why? He's dead. And nobody's even listening to him. Outside of certain, certain crowds, like, I like playing Bach, I like listening to Bach to a certain degree, but, you know, so I'm like, Err, you know, I think that's part of it, and so we have we ask ourselves these we ask practical questions <coughs> that are hopefully not too idealist to come to some sort of I don't know fulcrum point. I have a question about that actually. I see. Do, that. Would, would, do, do you think contemporary authors think they're competing with Shakespeare? Ah uh, yes. W wasn't the book about where who I, I can't remember I would, the author. I would beg to differ. Yeah. I don't know, but but the the person who said <laughs> who talked about Beethoven being on the shoulders. Who? Well, that Beethoven, happened. Be you know, Brahms had Beethoven in his rear view. Yeah. he definitely did. But that's because people were starting to think retrospectively. Mm. Mendelssohn introduced this whole idea that Bach was this great, and everybody started thinking back. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. So that's where I think it's really great that, that you've chosen to really just be yourself and, and write your own music. And I think that's really, really important because um, Bach will always be Bach and we'll always revere him the way we revere Shakespeare mm -hmm. and, and so many other wonderful um, people from the past. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get stuck there. That's for sure. Did, I, I'm probably overthinking or over visualizing the piece. <laughs> but are you? Did you? Were you thinking about moving, progressing? You know, from the more narrow parts of the spiral to the wider parts, and or all in one direction, perhaps, or back and forth in both directions, or or not at all. Um, did you feel that way? I, I was, well, after I heard the piece and, and the comments that came afterwards, I was wondering okay. if it might have been from narrow end to widest end as, as in terms of beginning to end. Well, in the spirit of this 
this concert series, I'll be honest. No. No, I wasn't thinking that at all. But, however, you know, there's, there's like something to be said for when you have an idea, how it, how it just manifests in certain ways. Um, that's why there's lots of love songs. Because, like, it's just, if it's something that's on your mind, then it comes out and it has certain, there's like a certain syntax that makes you know it's, it's a love song. So I think you're picking up on the, the image that was in my head and the process I was using. Um, but no, I, I didn't really think that at all. Um, to the, I did to the extent that we had just discussed about sort of the expanding and contracting of the, the numbers of repetitions. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that sort of reflected it a little bit, um, but rarely do I consider reflecting something visual. But I'm really happy that, that you had that experience. And at a certain point, you have the concept that you initiate, mm -hmm. and then you have to let it be organic. Sure, sure. But, you know, you start off, because if you, if you hold on the concept too long, then it becomes uh, a little contrived. Mm -hmm. You can ruin the listening experience. Yeah. You can ruin the whole thing because you, you're holding on to it so tight. At a certain mm -hmm. point, it, it, I, I think, like any great artist, the, the, the work starts to dictate what the piece becomes rather than the, the author or the composer or the choreographer. It, all just, it takes on a life of its own, and you have to, you have to respect that on a certain level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think to um, that's why the original piano piece I wrote was so bad <laughs> because I was trying so hard to think like oh how could I make people really see that you know but when I went back to it years later after forgetting about not years like three four years I I had sort of forgotten that and I was just like oh this is a really compelling musical idea how can I unpack this and allow an audience to live in this world. It's hard to manipulate something so personal as what's inside of somebody's mind. Yeah, right. yeah. And that's and that's part of the reason for this discovery series is to really just get glimpses in, inside the composer's mind and to discover the process. But it's really it's not about necessarily understanding it, but getting it. You know, just letting it touch you and, and uh, I really appreciate the wonderful playing that everybody brought. Thank you so much, all of you. Um, we're going to have some more refreshments, and, and we can continue the conversation informally. But thank you for all for coming. It's a, it's a pleasure to see you. After the event, I had the opportunity to ask some questions of Frank Narat myself. My question would be, um, you used a uh, hollow body, or semi-hollow body, oh. electric guitar. Mm -hmm. What influenced you to kind of choose that for your music when it's not traditionally uh, a classical instrument? Oh, to use like an electric guitar? Okay. Um, it's loud. Right. And I can adjust the volume on the fly. Um, classical guitar is too quiet. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, that's the main reason is... And the, the other reason is actually that people know what electric guitar sounds like. Right. Um, everybody. Like, you could go to, you know, any corner of the world that has some level of civilization, and everybody knows what electric guitar sounds like. Yes. Um, so I like that. I like having a sound that somebody can latch onto. 
um, especially if I'm writing something that's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, there's guitar in there. I can, I know, I get that. I get that sound. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's part of it. So people whose ears are attuned to, to pop music, do you think this could that could kind of help pull them into the classical world? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I'm like the five thousandth person to do it. You know. Right. Um, yeah, I think so. There's. There's a lot of classical pieces from the past 50 years or so that have electric guitar that I think that, like, you know, you could have your random cousin listen to it that has never been trained, and if you, like, explained it to them a little bit, they might be able to understand it because the sounds aren't foreign. You know, if it's, like, piano guitar or something like that, Mm -hmm. in voice. Yeah, I think I think taking advantage of those really familiar instruments, like using drum set or something like that, okay. is a way to draw draw in non musicians to something they might not otherwise listen to. I was curious about uh, we talked about how it started with a um, with a piano piece and that eventually became this sort of oh, yeah. illustrated thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been interested in the idea of uh, art sketches. You know, when mm. you see like uh, if you go to the Chicago uh, Institute of Art, you see all the sketches for the uh, the famous Sunday in the Park. Oh yeah, kind of so thing. like seeing how it started. Right. Yeah. Do you feel like people should have access to that, or or like that's something for mm. you? I know that's a very personal thing for an artist, yeah. Huh. I mean, no. No? You think that's for you? Not until I'm dead. Because I can't do anything about it at that point. Um, No, I mean, I think it's not a good piece. You know? Right. The piece that turned into this, I don't think was good. Um, Maybe there's somebody in the world who would be like, oh yeah, this is kind of cool, but... I didn't value it enough for anybody to hear it. So, and I think that would reflect that attitude would be reflected in the piece itself. Mm-hmm. So I think it's doomed. You okay. know what I mean? Yeah. So no, I don't want anybody to hear it. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, like if you came over and we were drinking beer, I might like be like, "Hey, dude, check this out." Like, "Oh, we'll yeah." Make an appointment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I thought about that. Uh, I read something recently about them releasing the demos that became uh, Randy Newman's Good Old Boys. Oh, really? Yeah, he was huh. planning on doing a different album, and then uh, they released it. He was very... He didn't want to do it, but the record company thought he'd make him a lot of money. I mean, if I if I could make a lot of money, I would do it in a heartbeat. Yeah, I mean, do you see... <laughs> I mean, if, if somebody wanted to buy for, like, $10,000 for some stupid reason, right. I'd be like, sure, show it to everybody. I yeah. mean, pay off, like, you know, 60% of my student loans. That's fair. I'm just starting on that. Um, yeah, it's real. Um, yeah, do you, but is that something that you think, for the composers that influence you, would you mm-hmm. want to see those sketches, or do you feel like you're good with the with the painting? Um, I mean, if it was like a composer I was like really into, like if it was like Steve Martland or Julius Eastman or um, David Lang or something, I would want to see them just because... I would find it cool. Be like, oh, like this person is human and they start somewhere just like I do. I mean, I know that, but like to see it would be cool. But if they didn't release it, like intentionally, I would understand because I feel the same way. Um, But yeah, I would take a look. I mean, there probably wouldn't be a ton. There's more to learn from from the finished product still. I think, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Right. Yeah. Okay, so I'm curious about... uh, 
this piece you said was inspired by a visual thing. What is your relationship yeah, with visual media? Um, do you find you're influenced a lot by, by visuals? Um, well, no. No, I don't. Um, not consciously. I mean, I'm currently watching a lot of Star Trek Next Generation and playing a lot of the video game Red Alert 2. Right. So those are like my main visual stimuli right now, and right. and yeah, like like we kind of talked about, it's like you know things that you're thinking about, going through, etc., might manifest itself yes. in your work. Um, but no, I typically don't attempt to turn something visual into something sonic. Um, Could you yeah. see something sonic of yours being turned into something visual? Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I've done something like that, but like, oh, so I, I had this piece for piano. It was a complete like rip off of something by Eric Satie, and I asked a ballet dancer to come dance to it, um, and I thought that was really fun and fruitful because we actually like collaborated on the choreography. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm into doing things like that, um, and I have written music intentionally to visual things, but it's not something I do often. Um, right. I'm glad you bring it up because you know it's something that is a really good way to write music is to expose yourself to one stimuli and turn it into sound. So, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> well, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, do you consider your music part of the avant-garde? Does that come into your mind? No, um, no, no. Um, I don't consider myself part of the avant-garde um, musically. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you ask? I guess I was interested, uh, you know, somebody commented after the first piece about the accessibility of the piece and how they were kind of looking for a melody to latch on to or something, uh, I think, a little yeah. more pleasing to the ear. Um, whereas I think your piece was very pleasing to the ear. It was very kind of Thank building. You. and Yeah. Um, Thank you. And I, I wondered about, you know, that sort of accessibility and whether you feel like that comes into the picture for you. It does because I think I've grown weary of composers and, and artists in general um, having this sort of reactionary idealism about human beings and their tastes. Right. And saying things like, why don't they get it? And yeah. things like that where it's like, you know, oh, there's this really radical progressive piece of music why why didn't this audience understand it they just don't get it and then there's some people who don't care if they get it or not right mm-hmm. you know the famous Milton Babbitt article who cares if they listen or who cares if you listen um, and I think that I do have that same frustration where it's like if I have a piece of music played and it, I didn't feel like the room was digging it, I'm like, why didn't they get that? Like, wh- what was wrong with the piece, you know? But I think it's it's unfortunate to go to a place of saying, oh, they just don't get it, and you give up on that. You give up on them, you give up... Because, I don't know, it just seems there's so much nihilism. Like, oh, people just don't get it. Like, well, why don't you why, it, either decide whether or not you care if they get it, and if you do care and you still want to write radical, progressive music, then keep writing it by all means, because I think it has its place. But 
realize that the reason a lot of people don't get it is because you have not taught them how to get it. You haven't taught them how to get it. So if, if you're if you're in some rural area or you come from a rural town or from from an urban area where there's not a lot of good education, like do something about that mm-hmm. instead of complaining that somebody doesn't get it. Like either don't care that they don't get it or or go out into the communities that you're frustrated with and deal with the problem because you're the same as they are. You just happen to have a different set of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So why not why not actually make an attempt to enrich your community that you're from or some community that you you see a lack in art or whatever and you think you can you can contribute in some meaningful way um yeah i I, and then and then i think you would quickly find that you would have to adjust your art right and if you don't want to do that then i guess you're stuck in in that space and you have to decide if you're okay with that or not and i want to i want to actually affect people so i try to do i mean great composers do this all the time aaron copeland um Julia Wolf do things that are super out there, super progressive, but in some sort of box that is really familiar, like using familiar instruments, using tonality instead of like aleatory or something, um, so that they're drawing really anybody in through some through some element of the piece, but also teaching them a little bit something new. I'm sorry, that was way too no, long. No, answer, but actually, that's something I think about all the time. Yeah, actually, along those lines, I was curious. Um, somebody mentioned the uh, the lack of chromaticism in the piece mm-hmm. and um, how you kind of, yeah. I mean, you had that boundary of, uh, I guess, you know, 12 notes, you know. Um, yeah. What's, uh, I mean, do you find that there's freedom in that boundary or do you feel like that, mm. that inspires you, the kind of, you know, not venturing out beyond that? Well, you can't really be creative. I, I can't be creative swimming in a sea of infinity. Right. So any box helps. Yeah, so it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I have a really good friend, John Jansen. John Jansen, shout out, shout out, shout out. Look him up. Um, John Jansen, he um, built his own instruments, and he uses microtones and takes advantage of the overtone series and does really cool stuff, and I think that's really cool, and he likes to do that. Um, he likes to swim in the sea of infinity, but I don't. Um, I li- I need a box. I'm not a groundbreaking artist in any way. I just want to like. I want to contribute to society, and I'm good at music, so this is how I'm doing it. So I want to like write music that people can be moved by in some way, whether it's like you know, dancing or just like enjoying in some way or making them think in some way or being a catalyst for something. And you can't really do that if you eschew everything they know about music. Um, I think you can take advantage of what they know about music and use your expertise as like a classically contra- trained composer or whatever to to manipulate those those tools to your advantage. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to the first Fulcrum Point podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this Discoveries event, consider coming to the upcoming installments of the series on July 18th, October 17th, and November 28th. 
Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fulcrumpoint or follow us on Twitter at fulcrumpoint. Special thanks to artistic director Stephen Burns and marketing director Chris Casey. Also thanks to the composers featured tonight, Keaton Garrett and Frank Narot, also accompanying on guitar, as well as the musicians. Jeremy Ruthroth on soprano saxophone, Richard Brazil on alto saxophone, Rachel Rule on piano, and Steve Roberts on guitar. Thank you for joining us in our journey to discover the sound of Chicago.